Thanks so much for joining me for episode two of the Trapcast. I know it's been kind of a while. I really wanted to do these on a monthly basis, but my schedule has been really harried. Um, I'm not going to complain about it because it's been all good fun stuff that I'll be talking about on my regular show as things get announced. But um, I'm thinking that these episodes are going to be farther spaced out than I would have originally liked. Um, at least just over the summer, and then we'll see what happens after that. I want to thank everybody for their patience. Um, I know my three listeners really want to hear about Trapper John episodes two and three, so I'm doing my best to get this out to you. I do want to say I got some really nice feedback on my first episode. Thanks everybody who listened and who got in touch with me. Um, I also got some constructive criticism. One of my friends told me that I talk like really, really fast, which I do. And I understand that. And it's strange to me because I do a lot of public speaking and, you know, I podcast too with my buddies over there, Dan and Nate, but you know, solo casting kind of terrifies me. Um, I don't know. For some reason, the lectures are easier. Uh, and I know that I speak at a more measured pace when I do them. And I don't know if that's because there's people just directly in front of me. Um, I don't know what the deal is, is what I'm saying. So just please be patient with me. I'm working on it. I do recognize that I talk really, really fast. And I do that on the regular podcast as well. Although maybe I'm a little more measured with it. Not sure. But um, anyway... I just have a lot to say is what it comes down to. So again, um, just please be patient with me. There's some things that are on my mind that I'm working on, and I'm going to do my best to get these episodes to you and to get them out with the best possible production value, meaning everything here is really cheap, but I do my best to make things sound okay and to put in the clips where I think they should be and to just make it like a pleasurable listen. So it's a learning process. Um, and just thanks so much for sticking it out with me. So before I dive in, um, I want to start with what I hope will be something I can do in every episode. This will be what I call the trap fact. And when I get some more time, I'm going to build a little stinger for it, I think, or at least try to. So all it is, is the trap fact is that I'm just going to pull out some random piece of trivia out about the show. It probably won't be related to any of the episodes I'm discussing, but it may shine a light on the series anyway, or might be kind of fun or interesting. Um, it might be just about the actors. It might be about, um, I don't know, the show itself, maybe just random stuff about San Francisco where the show takes place. I haven't decided yet, but I came up with this because I was looking through some old newspaper articles and I stumbled on a piece that was written to promote the pilot episode. So the series creator who I talked about in the last episode briefly named Frank Lixman, um, 
And uh, Pernell Roberts and Gregory Harrison were all interviewed for this article. And I saw this one really neat bit of trivia. So here we go. Did you know that uh, Gregory Harrison was a helicopter medic in the Army? In the interview, he said that experience really helped him to play Gonzo. Um, he actually said, quote, I don't need an expertise pill. It's a pleasure not having to run to the show's technical advisor each time asking him how to pronounce words or how to hold an instrument, end quote. Ooh, well, I'd like to hold Gonzo's instrument. Yeah, I said it. So anyway, this information is yours to do with as you please, and let's move along. Let's get to the really, really fun stuff in the meat of our show. Today I'm covering the episodes titled Flashback and Deadly Exposure. So those are episodes two and three. I did like one a bit more than the other, so that's the one I'm going to concentrate on, and that one is Flashback, which is the first one here I'm going to talk about. So let's get started. Let me give you the plot synopsis of Flashback, which originally aired on September 30th, 1979. This one starts with everyone grumbling about a patient who is checking out. No one seems to like him. He's a super sarcastic poet named Jennings. He's played by James Coco, who we all love um, normally, but not necessarily as this character. He's on his way to his car with the nurse when they encounter a gunman in the parking lot just randomly shooting at people outside of the emergency room. Listen to me! Listen to me! I see ya! Hit the dirt! Hold me Hit the dirt, I said! It's Mr. Jennings! He's been shot! Get down! See? Don't move a muscle! Or I'll pull your head off! You stay! See? Nobody move! Down! Okay, Bob, freeze! to say I think this scene is really really well shot. It's kind of tough to explain on a podcast but there's some really great camera work that I think adds a lot of tension to the scene and I think also it's kind of hard not to look at random gunmen today and not kind of feel something considering what is happening in our country um, especially over the last few years with all of the shootings so there's like an extra air um, albeit unintentional to the scene but the camera work itself is just really I think sort of masterful I want to say um, if I could be so bold. Anyway I'm not going to bring the podcast down with shootings and stuff. Let me just tell you, guess who gets shot, guys? Yep, Jennings. And now he's paralyzed and needs surgical procedures, which uh, may or may not restore his ability to use his legs. Um, the problem is he was originally in the hospital with a heart condition, and this is making the upcoming surgeries um, a little tricky, probably. Hospital and the prospects are extremely exciting. The very idea gives me a reason for living. You're not very grateful, are you? Grateful? If it wasn't for this disgusting place, my life wouldn't be in jeopardy. That's right. You'd be dead. Was it uh, that close? Mm-hmm. I want the truth, Doctor. Am I going to die? Well, not if I can help it. I, um... Uh... I'm not going to lie to you, Mr. Jennings. Your legs are weak because the bullet lodged in your spine. Now, you've had some internal bleeding, which created pressure on the spinal cord. Now, the neurosurgeons haven't fully evaluated your condition yet, but uh, 
So far, everything is stable. So um, let me just tell you a little bit about the gunman. His name is Frank. Um, he was played by a character actor named David Huffman. And I'm going to talk a little bit more in depth about David when I get to um, past the synopsis and past sort of some of the story that I thought was really intriguing. Um, he's fantastic, and he's so great in this. Um, so anyway, he's brought into the hospital. He's subdued and brought in, and he's clearly hallucinating, and he keeps saying the name Charlie, which, of course, Gonzo immediately recognizes because of his experiences in Vietnam. Hey. What's going on? What is this? Hey! Somebody? Anybody? What are you doing to me? Hey! Get me out of this thing! What am I doing here? Get me out of this! It's okay, I'll handle it. Who are you? My name's Gates. I'm a doctor. Why am I tied up like easy, this? Easy, Frank. Just take it easy. I'll loosen him up. You're in San Francisco. Memorial Hospital. We're treating this bullet wound on your leg. Bullet wound? It's not serious. You should be walking on it in a few days. How? How did it happen? You don't remember? No. Who's the creep that shot me? One of our security men. Security men? You don't remember anything about this morning? You tell me what's going on. All right. You knocked out one of our guards, stole his gun, and started shooting up the parking lot. <laughs> You're crazy. <laughs> I'll never do that. You're doing a number on me, right? No, Frank, it's the truth. I was there. So were a lot of other people. So we find out Frank is a vet who kind of got lost in the shuffle and is suffering from what they call the Vietnam Syndrome, which is basically what they used to call post-traumatic stress disorder, or that version of it anyway, or PTSD, which is what I'm going to call it here. Gonzo is really drawn to him, uh, and he attempts to help, but um, he's also been assigned to perform that tricky procedure on Jennings, and he's a bit hesitant since he's become emotionally connected to the vet. This is where we get eight layers of that reverse psychology that I talked about in the first episode. I mean, <laughs> there's so much of it that I'm almost not sure that I can remember where it starts and where it stops. Uh, it's probably just as well that you're not doing the surgery. It gives me a chance to get a little more familiar with this type of thing. You're putting me on. With all your experience. Are you kidding? With this job of mine, all that paperwork, I can hardly keep up with my own mail. Now, there's the placement of the bullet. The myelogram shows an extra dural defect. I was thinking about using a posterior approach. No, trap. <laughs> That's no good. You'd have a heck of a time getting to the bullet. I, well, I'd use the anterior approach. Yeah, well, that's uh, a little unconventional, isn't it? Trapper, we've been doing that procedure for three or four years. Yeah, well, I guess I better try and get Harry Titus to... Titus? I don't think he's ever done one of these. And what's more, he's practically senile. Yeah, but he's, he's a great guy. I feel nice and comfortable with him. Uh, what about the actual uh, removal of the bullet? You don't know? Well, it's been a while. You got any ideas? Okay, look, maybe I'd better just uh, take this case myself. No, 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 not if it's against your principles. It's against my principles to see a patient mutilated. I'd better get scrubbed up. It does the trick, and Jennings has a surgery, and Frank is given some help with his PTSD. 
As I mentioned in the first episode, Trapper John often took on some politically charged issues. Uh, they kept it pretty vanilla, tried to mainstream it, um, but they did a really good job of entering um, topics into sort of uh, the landscape, uh, making it watercolor talk, I guess. Uh, I didn't do a lot of heavy research on the topic, but here's what I remember about Vietnam and television in the 70s and early 80s. There were Vietnam vet characters on television, but it was seldom a main talking point for the character. Often, as uh, with a show like this or something like Streets of San Francisco, one of Vietnam a vet characters filtered in. They sometimes discuss their experiences, sometimes not. Um, but I made a very short list of a few shows that stuck out to me. So Wings Hauser um, was really good in this early Magnum P.I. episode titled Wave Goodbye, which is actually not one of my favorite episodes, but he's definitely a standout of it. He's um, this vet who's sort of homeless, and he's falsely accused of killing a female surfer. Um, he's kind of what you would call shell-shocked, and he's been targeted, again, because he is in this sort of mental state, and he's homeless. Uh, I think Wings is really good in it, though, because it's a character that I think could have been really over the top, and Wings takes it right up to the edge, because that's so Wings, right? Just to go right to the edge. And, you know, and it's also Magnum, so a lot of Magnum um, is really delicately handled and written, so I think they did a pretty good job with that. And we'll briefly talk a little bit about Magnum, who was a Vietnam vet as well, in a minute. Um, there was also a Lou Grant episode. Uh, it was uh, titled Vet, which is an app title. Um, and it was about the recurring character Animal. I don't know if you guys all remember Animal was the photographer on the show. He's really great. He starts experiencing some issues that are rooted in his time served in Vietnam. So this leads to Lou Grant and his staff to looking into servicemen who were damaged from the war and then forgotten about. Um, another one that's really good, and I haven't had a chance to revisit it, was an episode of Quincy titled Shadow of Death, which is actually about a woman, Karen Austin played her, who is a nurse suffering with PTSD from her experiences in Vietnam. And that one's really fascinating because I don't think we have a lot dealing with women who had these traumatic experiences who served there as well. There is actually another magnum with Marcia Strassman, and I didn't write down the name of that one, but I remember that that specifically deals with women in Vietnam as well. So there was a little bit of examination of those who were left behind, um, if I can use that in quotes. As you probably know, um, or if you remember from the first episode, Gonzo is a vet as well, and so is Trapper, obviously from uh, Korea. But those sort of character traits um, or character experiences, that's kind of an aside. And that seemed to be the norm for shows. I feel like Riptide, they were Vietnam vets, but I'm not positive of that. But then there were shows like Magnum, as I mentioned, where the main characters were vets and it played more heavily either into the stories or within the character arcs and their development um then we got a little distance and then shows like china beach began to explore the real realities of war not to diminish what magnum or even trapper john were doing but i think what's going on here is that we're being gently introduced to the topic of what became of the soldiers after they returned home um, this Trapper John is a little poignant, and it's complicated because Frank's wife uh, recounts some of the horrible things he's done to her since he came back from Vietnam, including punching her in the face. Um, it's actually shocking to watch this with modern eyes because um, despite having a more nuanced understanding of PTSD, I, I can't believe that she stuck it out with him. Um, I really struggled with that, but I think that that's the part of the stereotype, too, of how we see battered women. So, okay, so I'm having this inner dialogue with myself as I'm watching it. So... What I'm trying to say is from the outside, I think we 
meaning me and other people, are shocked to see this, but we don't know what's going on, and we shouldn't judge why people stay. And I don't mean this just for all battered wives, but I mean specifically here for Frank's wife. We kind of have a background as to why she's there, because he used to not be like this. He went to the war, he came back, and he was different. So so this is kind of asking us to take a step back and and see what's happening and maybe have less of a critical eye on it. So that's all to say that Flashback is handling all kinds of interesting topics. Um, and it's doing it through the eyes of Gonzo and Trapper, who are, you know, benevolent doctors. So we see these characters without judgment ourselves, or at least I think that's what they're attempting to do and how I ended up viewing it, I think. And I think that's really great. And it's probably a little progressive for the time. But again, I didn't really do a lot of research on how Vietnam was depicted in the 70s. Uh, maybe people listening might have a better understanding of the portrayals of vets on television. Um, I'm just using my own personal experience to state why I feel this episode really sets the tone for the way the series introduced pretty heady topics in ways that mainstream audiences could consume them. And honestly, I think it's kind of wonderful. But to go back to what I'm talking about, I didn't do a ton of research on this, but I will say I did see some articles where Vietnam vets really disliked this kind of examination of the war on TV and in film. It's not that there weren't problems that they had to tackle, but it's that vets were always portrayed as psychologically damaged, unemployable, or just down on their luck. So now that I think that happens a lot with the one-off characters, but I would argue that when you see shows like Trapper John or like uh, Magnum, you are seeing somebody who's held it together. Um, but I think that that tended to be more of a rarity and and a real rarity because I don't remember a lot of shows actually talking about being Vietnam vets. They just were, less, like with Gonzo. So um, so it's a work in progress. But, I mean, we're all a work in progress, right? So, I mean, this is the philosophy I'm taking from the show today. So, oh, there was also a goofy subplot about Riverside wanting to incorporate himself. Uh, I think audiences can already see how he's being retooled. He's a goofball. But they haven't been fully introduced to the humor of Riverside yet. Uh, I think in... Deadly Exposure, which is the next episode I'm going to talk about, there's actually a really fascinating subplot with Riverside that I'm going to spend just a couple minutes with. And I really want to get to that episode because Riverside, right? Riverside. It's all about him. But let me talk a little bit about David Huffman, who played Frank. Um, this was actually a really sad story if you're not familiar with the actor. And it's really unfortunate because I think he was such an immense talent. Huffman was murdered when he was 39 years old. I think it was in 1985. Um, and he left a pretty short filmography behind. Um, I guess he's probably best known for starring in Blood Beach in the early 80s. He was also in a movie called Fist, which uh, I think aired in the 70s. But he appeared on both stage and screen um, quite a bit in the short time that he was working as an actor. There's not a ton of info on Huffman um, outside from the reports of his murders, but I wanted to try to put a little bio together for him because I just think he was so great. And I loved watching him on TV. I loved him so much. David Hoffman was born in Illinois on... May 10th, 1945. He grew up in a suburb near the city of Chicago and found a love for acting in high school when he appeared in a play and found that he felt a quote-unquote rush of elation and that he loved the audience's applause. Um, he ended up going to college at Webster University in St. Louis, Missouri, and he met his wife there. Her name is Phyllis Huffman. Um, I'm not, I don't know what her maiden name was. Uh, she would end up becoming a pretty big casting director, uh, and she worked a lot with um, Clint Eastwood. Uh, so anyway, he was cast in the movie Fist, which I just mentioned, and I should have looked here. I put the years 1978. He got a lot of notice for that. Um, something interesting about Huffman there is he gained 20 pounds uh, to match the characters he ages through the film. 
unfortunately, even though he got a lot of attention, um, it just didn't lead to a, a lot of work, and I guess in the way he envisioned it. Uh, but he did find enough on stage and TV to kind of keep his career going and just do that instead of having to find side jobs. Um, some of the stuff he did in theater, he played Gloria Swanson's son in a Broadway production of Butterflies Are Free. That was also put on in Pittsburgh, which is where I live. That's why I noted it here, in a theater called The Nixon. I wish I'd known that because I would have made a pilgrimage to that theater if it's still there um, and stood outside it and took some photos. Um, other stage productions had him working alongside actors such as Bernadette Peters and Simon Oakland. Almost every play he appeared in that I could find a review of was well-received. Uh, and he did say he preferred the stage. He said that that's where the heart of the learning process for an actor was. But TV would end up being his bread and butter. He appeared in all kinds of things. Um, he was on an episode of Lou Grant, um, which is coming up a lot today. Uh, T.J. Hooker and Remington Steele, among other things. Saturday, a murder victim without a memory, a detective without a clue, and a madman who must kill again. Karen Valentine and William Devane in Jane Doe, Saturday. I guess I remember him best from a TV movie called Jane Doe from 1983, uh, which is a mystery thriller that also starred Karen Valentine and William Devane. I remember it just kind of popping up on TV at some point in a rerun. I think that's when I first really took the time to look at who he was. Um, I remember looking him up after that. It's not my favorite TV movie, but it's not bad. It's not bad at all. I think it's that Karen Valentine has this horrendous mullet in it, and I really have a hard time getting past the mullet. But the mystery itself, it's a little predictable, but worthwhile. Devane's great in it. Huffman's great. Like, Valentine's great. Just let your hair grow out. Karen, please. The California coast, playground of America, until something deep beneath the sand turned it into Blood Beach. It's when you thought it was safe to go back in the water, you can't get to it. I'm not kidding, I think I'm fine, my feet! Blood Beach, where the water may be the safest place to be, rated R. Opening January 23rd at theaters near you. Then I saw him in Blood Beach, which I thought he was wonderful in, and which I thought was a really good movie that didn't get a lot of acclaim when it came out. I think it was sort of like a lesser successful version of Alligator. It was sort of like a satire on the monster movie, but it didn't fully reach um, the sort of pinnacle of the humor in the way that I think Alligator did. But I think it's really, really good. Um, and he's so good in it. Um, he was also really good in the not-so-good TV movie Look What Happened to Rosemary's Baby, which we covered on the main podcast, and we talked a little bit about him there as well if you want to hear more about him. Um, he's going to be in One More Trapper John, so I have that to look forward to. Um, Hoffman was super creative. Um, when he couldn't find acting work, he would take time off to help raise his son, but he also painted and wrote a lot of poetry, um, which he said was very bad, but which I'm sure was wonderful. Huffman was murdered on February 27, 1985. He was stabbed to death when he chased down a young man suspected of trying to rob a motorhome in Balboa Park in San Diego. So he was doing a play there, and I don't know if he was on break or on his way to the play, but he saw something suspicious and he pursued it, and he got stabbed, and he didn't actually have any ID on him at the time, so his body wasn't identified till many hours later. Um, his murderer was caught a couple of weeks later. I think if memory serves from looking at the articles, the people who were, um, the guy had attempted to rob didn't realize that somebody had chased him down and had died. And I think that there was sort of a recreation of the events on the news and um, one of the couples in the motorhome recognized the situation and called it in. And then they were able to put um, an ID on the guy. Uh, Hoffman left behind two children. This whole thing makes me so sad. Every time I see him, it's sort of 
really bittersweet for me because I love him so much, but there's just this air of sadness about it because he was just a really talented actor. He was a chameleon, I think. I often didn't realize it was the same actor when I'd watch him in different things, and he was kind of joyous. Uh, I think his performance in Flashback is really strong and impressive. I think if you've never seen David Hoffman before and you seek out this episode, I think you'll see what I'm talking about. Um, he's so good in everything. Um, you know, it's, it's what I'm saying is he's a guest on a new show and he's just so dynamic and he really carries the complexity of the character. And I just really adore him. So I'm glad I've gotten this venue to talk about him a little. Um, I guess see Jane Doe, see Blood Beach, see this episode of Trapper John. He's great in everything. So this episode was written by a man named Eric Tarloff. Uh, during this era, Eric was involved in a lot of politically motivated shows, which might show why there's some nuance here to the story. Um, he wrote for shows like All in the Family, Maud, MASH. Um, and I think it's interesting that he primarily worked in comedies uh, because this is not obviously a comedy, but I think he did a pretty decent job here. Um, except I will say that the one cop investigating the shooting is a bit of a joke. He just is. <laughs> Deadly Exposure originally aired on October 7th, 1979, and begins with Gonzo reuniting with an old love from medical school. They're in the Titanic, and we find out that this woman in Gonzo's life is named Dr. Valerie Tatum. Uh, she's played by Dee Wallace, and she works for a chemical plant as their doctor. Later, a woman named Linda, who is one of the employees of that plant, comes to the hospital, and we find out that she's been exposed to dangerous amounts of radiation. Jane Kennedy plays her. This character is engaged, and all of a sudden, the idea that she may have cancer or might be barren from the exposure has her lame boyfriend second-guessing their marriage. Suppose your blood count stays normal. Does that mean there's no damage from the radiation? I don't know. From what I understand, there's no telling what might happen down the line. Steve. Steve, I'm sorry. I know how badly you want kids. It's okay. Don't bother me. Well, it's a dirty trick. You want a wife that can give you a family, and I can't promise you anything. For all we know, you could end up with a basket case on your hands. Quit talking like that. No, I want to be realistic about this. For your sake, I think we should call the wedding off for a while. At least until we know what's going to happen with me. What do you think? What are you doing? Testing me? Testing you? Yeah, checking out my reactions. I don't like that sort of thing, Linda. You haven't answered my question. Should we call off the wedding? I really don't know. Never mind. You just answered it. Also, Gonzo finds out that his girlfriend knew about the leaks and hid it so that she could keep her job. Uh, this leads Gonzo um, to wanting to do a little whistleblowing, and he hopes Valerie will help him, but instead she attempts to split town. When Gonzo confronts her, we find out that she had been sued for malpractice in the previous town she lived in, and she was never really able to get back on her feet afterwards, uh, kind of leaving her feeling desperate and pretty much giving her a big fat excuse to let other people work around dangerous levels of radiation. Um, yeah, I don't really know about that. Your patients were being poisoned by radiation and you didn't do anything about it? 
I hope to God you've got a damned good reason. It was really very simple. I was afraid of losing my job. That's crazy. You're a good doctor. You can work any place. If necessary, you can always go back to private practice. No, I can't. <sighs> See, I had this marvelous little practice in Montana, just out of school, doing beautifully. Until I was clobbered with a malpractice suit. Malpractice suit, huh? It was unfair and messy and very expensive. I won the suit, but I lost everything else. My patients drifted away. My insurance almost tripled. My practice just died. I spent a whole year going into debt, trying to get back on my feet. The job at BC's was the only thing I could find. And that job... That, uh, that lousy job was more important to you than the lives of your patients. But Dr. Riverside gets another subplot here. He's taking care of a man named Nicholas Bulgari, played by Jack Crucian, who you may know from Saints Cheerleaders, um, and a ton of other stuff like Columbo, but Saints Cheerleaders first. Um, Nicholas is the patriarch of this clan of gypsies, and of course Riverside has all these stereotypes about the family. Um, Nicholas would like uh, a family member who lives somewhere else, uh, I think in the state, to come and see him and give some medical advice. But Riverside refuses to help the family retrieve him, and the oldest son starts doing all this pseudo hoopy joopy stuff to make Riverside believe he has magical powers. Hi there, um, I was just leaving. Not yet. My father's dying. No, he's not. I just wanted to look at him. He's doing, he's doing beautifully. He thinks he's dying. That's as bad as death itself. Not exactly as bad. What he needs is Uncle Theo. <laughs> really, you gypsies and your superstitions. This is not a gypsy superstition. This is my father's superstition, and it should be respected. I'd like you to arrange for Uncle Theo to come here. Arrange? How? Pay for his plane ticket. Absolutely. Look at that money line. Are you going to tell me you can't afford it? That's no, not the money. No, it's not the money. This is a modern medical facility. We can't have practitioners of folk medicine performing weird tricks with frogs and lizards. What's this? I see a very beautiful woman in your life. Really? Where? But she's very ill, suffering from... Can it be? It is. Radiation poisoning. Where did you hear about that? I'm a gypsy. I hear all sorts of groovy things. It turns out the relative um, is actually a legit medical professional, and Riverside is just a dupe, but an adorable dupe, because we love him, don't we? Um, I love this subplot. I think it's really fun. I think it flips the whole gypsy stereotype on its ear, which not totally uncommon in the 70s. I think the Waltons tried to do that in an episode as well. Um, Dr. Riverside, though, he's feeding into all these myths about the gypsies, and so he's easily conned by Nicholas's son. So he thinks Nicholas's son is doing some kind of fortune-telling um, when he finds out that there's a radiation patient in the hospital, but he's actually just read a chart is what he's done, which is hilarious. And it turns out that the relative, of course, is in a legitimate position to help this family member. So everything we're led to assume about these gypsies is wrong. 
Um, you know, it's a very insubstantial subplot in many ways, but I do like that they've taken this approach, you know, to destabilize stereotypes through humor. Um, but as much as I like that subplot, I think of these two episodes, this is really the lesser one. Um, I think the radiation storyline is prevalent. It, it was being a little political. Um, but, you know, Lou Grant covered the same story actually right before this in an episode titled Poison. Um, I'm always going to come back to Lou Grant, aren't I? And I think maybe they did it a little better. Uh, maybe. Um, I think one of the things that makes this one not as good is that Valerie keeps quote-unquote pretending like she's going to come forward and then does the opposite. And it's really frustrating. As much as I love Dee Wallace, that's not my favorite um, character she's ever played. It's, it's also kind of hilarious and disturbing that we see her on the phone um, talking to the higher-ups at her job, but she's actually faked the phone call, so Gonzo just thinks she's talking to them. And I mean, she's having this conversation for like a full minute. I mean, I think she's insane, guys. I think she might be a little crazy. And also, speaking of crazy, what man in his right mind would ever leave Jane Kennedy? I can't answer that question for you. Anyway, this episode was directed by Joseph Pebney. Um, that's a name I recognize because he did a whole gaggle of Hardy Boys mysteries and Emergencies, actually, which are two of my favorite shows from this era. He also directed a couple of TV movies. The one that stood out to me on his filmography is called Who is the Black Dahlia, which is a pretty underrated true crime drama starring Lucy Arnaz. I read that Joseph lived to be 96, which I think is pretty awesome. The script was written by somebody named Jim Rogers, but he normally worked in sitcoms, just like the writer of the last episode I talked about. Uh, but whereas I think that one worked, I think maybe the comedic roots might be why this one's a bit of a misfire. I don't know. And I'm starting to think here in the third episode, I need a little more jackpot. He's barely been in any of the episodes so far, and I'm hoping really soon he shows up. Next on Trapper John. I will be back at some point to talk about episodes four and five, which are titled Love is a Three-Way Street and The Shattered Image. Um, let me tell you how to get in touch with me. You can email uh, me with any kind of Trapper John feedback at tvmayhempodcast at gmail.com. You can find us at TV Mayhem Podcast on Twitter, at the Made for TV Mayhem show on Facebook, and at Made for TV Mayhem on Instagram. Thanks so much for listening. I hope that you don't have to wait as long for the next episode. And I really appreciate you listening.